So Israel has had an, a very remarkable story. And as we've read in Romans getting up to this point, Paul is both lamenting and rejoicing at the same time over the gospel. He's rejoicing, of course, because the gospel is good news and because God has done this unthinkable thing. He's taken the Gentiles and grafted them in, but he's also lamenting because he doesn't know what's going to happen with Israel. And as we turn there and read it and think about this, we don't want to gloss over the difficulty that he's having in reconciling these things. My guess is that at the time that he was writing, the Apostle Paul was one of the foremost, if not the foremost, historical scholar on the history of Israel. And the reason that I know that is because he says he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He paid attention in history class. He probably taught many a history class. And so when he reflects on just where the people of God are and how they're receiving, or in much of Israel's case, not receiving the Messiah, he's torn. And what we've learned as we've considered back to the beginning is that once there was no people of God, and then God called Abram, and there was a promise for a people, and this people then began to wander, waiting on an inheritance of land, and God organized them and rescued them and gave them a law under Moses and then cleared the land ahead of them with Joshua and finally brought them in where this people that was once not a people that did not have instruction in law, now had those things and were becoming a nation. They could draw a line in the sand and say that this land is more or less ours. And that nation grew into a kingdom. There was a unified kingdom for three kings worth, 40 years of Saul and 40 years of David and then 40 years of Solomon. And then tragically, because of sin, that kingdom splits in half. There are more or less 250 more years of some national kingdom with a king, with an organization, land that Israel calls home. This is the people of God. It's where they dwell. In 722, the northern kingdom falls. Assyria comes through and destroys them and takes them off. And for around 150 years, the southern kingdom thinks, well, at least it's not us. We're the faithful ones. We'll remain in the land. And then as we saw over the last couple of weeks, Sometime 586 to 587, the southern kingdom falls. And doesn't just fall, but falls spectacularly. Jerusalem is burned to the ground. Brick by brick, the temple, which had been so rejoiced in and had so much glory, is leveled. Every one of the bits of the sacred materials of that temple have been carted off and taken into Babylon. The people are forced to be reconditioned with new food, new rituals, new languages, And in many ways, the people of God at this particular moment that we're coming to at the end of 2 Chronicles, we looked at last week, has less identity, less identifying marks than at any time for hundreds of years. And what takes place at the end of 2 Chronicles in that situation is that out of nowhere, for no good reason, God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, the Babylonians are going to fall to the Persians, And one of the kings of the Persians, Cyrus, is going to tell you to go back and rebuild. And this will happen because I said so. And so what takes place is what we're going to find and read about in Ezra, a group of this nation of of Israel, these people of God, go back to Jerusalem and they begin the slow task of rebuilding a temple. This rebuilt temple is going to be referred to as Second Temple Judaism, which is a, a very aptly named thing. What period of time is it? Well, you know, the time when they had a second temple. So that was 
That was a very nice of historians to name it that. And it's this moment in time where this group goes back and they begin rebuilding it that more or less is congruent with and kind of overlaps the same moment in time that the people of God find themselves when Jesus comes into the world, when he dies and is resurrected, and when the Apostle Paul is on his missionary journeys and preaching. So when Paul is saying in Romans 10 and 11, 9, 10, and 11, that he is grieving for Israel, this is, at least geopolitically speaking, at least as far as their army goes or their economy or their worship, this is the world that he's writing to. So everything that we've come through, all these ups and downs, the whole roller coaster that we've read, we're finally getting now to a situation that was recognizable, that was understandable to Paul as he's writing. This is a nation that has a tattered and torn sense of identity, some claim to the land but not running it, and a temple that we're going to see is not exactly the same. So that's the situation that we're in as we turn to Ezra, and I'm going to begin reading in the third chapter. Ezra chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Ezra comes along later, and as I read, I'm going to point out a couple of things that is happening as these people go back. The first thing to point out before we begin reading in Ezra chapter 3, verse 8, is that this group, when Cyrus says, go ahead and go back, he numbers the group. It's about 50,000 folks. So think about like uh, 3 p.m. non-ACC FSU football game at home. Not full but foolish, 50,000 people and all of their stuff go back to Jerusalem, and it's that crew of people that Ezra's going to comment now on as they try to put back together what has been lost. It's been about 70 years living in exile. And Ezra records this for us. It says, now in the second year after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, sorry, in the second month, now one thing quickly after the second month, We're going to note here it was the second month of the year that Solomon first began construction of the first temple. And this is telling us something. Second year in the second month. They wait the whole first year. They wait. They say, we're going to start in the second month. Zerubbabel, which is a great name for the Old Testament, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. I'll pause there just for a moment. I'm going to point out a couple of things. One, they were organizing themselves according to what they had when they were in Israel previously. Zerubbabel is a grandson of the king who was last in power, so he's got the royal bloodline. The Levites are coming forward and doing Levite-like things. They're considering the offerings and taking care of the altar and watching the worship. The sons of Asaph, the great worship leaders, all the best worship leaders are coming forward and they're dusting off their cymbals. Then they ask everyone to sing responsively. It's one of the reasons that we do this together as a church. It's been a part of God's history down through the ages. They sang together with one voice as much as they can, responsively. And then this phrase, he is good, his steadfast love endures forever, 
from 2 Chronicles chapter 7 is exactly what Solomon led the people in singing at the dedication of the first temple. So as we're reading this, what we're seeing is there's a picture here of a group of people who are trying to recapture something. They're putting everything in place to bring about what had been lost. We're going to go on now. It says, all the people, after they had this responsive reading, all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Indistinguishable joy and weeping. It sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul's heart as he writes in Romans, and so I think we may be, we may be on to something here. I wonder if you wouldn't just pray with me for a moment before we continue. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Don't let gratitude be something that we, pump on, or we punt on or skimp today. We want to be grateful. So open our eyes. I pray, too, that we'd be honest. We are not equipped, not spiritual enough, not impressive. We have temptations and tendencies that would harm us here today, so keep us. Please, Holy Spirit, keep us. I also pray that we could live into our confession. We confess things concerning Scripture. These words are not only true, but they're profitable. We want profit here this morning. So, Spirit of God, profit us. I pray that you teach us, give us some instruction. We, we confess and have learned that these words ought to give us instruction. So, Spirit of God, teach. Where we have hard hearts, there may be in these words for us a rebuke. So chasten us this morning, God. Give us a proper reproving in your word. God, I ask that these words would be, as you've taught us to confess, that they would be for our training in righteousness. We want to live better lives. We don't want to continue to be enslaved in the same ways. Help us to love what you love, to hate what you hate to have more of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, that righteousness would reign in our lives. We we want that. That's what we say that this word is for. So we ask now, Spirit of God, help us to not go through the motions, but teach us and reprove us and train us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think you got the picture of a people recreating something that they had lost, and the very mixed experiences of what it's like to be a part of a group like that. It made me think of a time when I was in high school. I was probably 16 or 17. I was with my best friend at the time. And we were hanging out with some older cousins, which meant that they had a bunch of their friends around. And it turned out that a bunch of their friends were still their, their, their cronies from high school. This was their crew. And at first, it was kind of fun because they were interested in what we were doing. They'd gone to the same high school. It was an alma mater kind of thing. And we had shared some funny stories about teachers and things. But then it became evident after a while that their interest in our experience was only so that they could rehearse what they had experienced. And in nearly every circumstance, it was better. 
hey, do they still go over there on the back part of the parking lot thing there and like hang out and stuff? And we'd be like, yeah, some kids party over there. Oh, that's nothing. You wouldn't have believed the ragers we threw back in the day. You know, that sort of spirit. Hey, how's the rivalry going? You guys been beating Red River lately? What's going on? Be like, yeah, we had a great game. They haven't made it for like three, a couple of years, you know? It's like three, 4,000 people there, the newspaper, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, man, that's nothing. That's nothing. You guys don't even know what a rivalry is. Back in our day, the moment I saw a kid from Red River, punched him straight in the nose. You guys don't even know what this is about. It was just so much better back then. You guys have to go to school in the snow when it was storming. You have to go. Does it get cold walking between, you know, parking and your classes and stuff? Oh, yeah, it was freezing. It was 20 below. <laughs> Back in our day, you don't even know. They gave us no clothes or whatever else, right? You know the spirit? Do you know the spirit of the kind of thing that just says we're, we're bound by, and this is going to be the phrase for the morning, we're bound by better days. You know, the kind of group of dudes who just like, dusting off their letterman's jacket. And I remember then and there that my friend and I left that and we were just kind of laughing about it. And we both just said, let's really enjoy high school and make the most of it. But why don't we live our lives in such a way that this is not our better days? That this just, this, this won't be the thing that we talk about. Let's never encounter a bunch of kids and just be like, let me tell you when my highlights ended then, Right? And I say that story and I recall that because it seems like that's a little bit of the battle that's going on here in Ezra. He's describing a group of people, 50,000 strong. They come back in, there's much to rejoice in, and they are rejoicing. But at the same time, there's some old men, it tells us, who had seen the first house. Imagine being maybe an eight or nine year old kid, and your family was an important family. So you helped at the temple. This was meaningful to you. You were on your way to political influence. And then out of nowhere, Everything is destroyed. And you watch things get burned. And you see men with armor on and gleaming swords kill people that you love. And more than that, they go to the place of God's presence, the temple itself, and they tear it down brick by brick. And things that you know have been consecrated to God are being handled roughly and thrown off into a museum somewhere for the glory of a Babylonian king. And now you go back and you see this group of people and they're building the things and the foundation gets laid and even though everyone's rejoicing, there's something in this group that just says, oh, but that ain't nothing. That ain't nothing. And what's being described here is that somehow this group is wondering they seem bound by better days and the greater question here is is that is God in his story and his working with his people is he bound by better days is he always going to be judged by what it was like back then now there's a couple of things that we should just say right at the outset never once is it argued from the text of scripture that the second temple was just as glorious as the first this wasn't an eye of the beholder kind of thing it was tattered and torn and they didn't have what they needed for it. The first temple was built in a moment when Solomon was king of the earth, literally. Other nations are coming and dragging all of their riches to just listen to him speak. They had gold-laden gold. You know the phrase like muscles on muscles? They had gold on gold, strength on strength. 
And they made a temple that was gleaming. Caretakers to spit shine every corner. They followed the rules according to David the best that they possibly could. There were moments of worship and praise at this temple that everyone recalls. And now this whole group's going back and they're trying to recreate it. And there's this group that just says, well, let me tell you, this ain't nothing. And I think that my instinct when I read something like this is that I get it. I get it because all of us have experienced loss, right? All of us know what it's like to remember and to think back and to say to yourself, okay, I remember that experience and how pristine it was and I remember living in that moment and this just isn't it. You ever go back to the restaurant that was the favorite restaurant in the world and you drag three of your friends? You just couldn't believe it, how good it was? And you go back and then it's like they've changed everything? It's the same meal, but it's terrible? You think to yourself, well, it just was like if it was like this. And in some ways, I understand this intermingled, weeping, joyful, rejoicing, shouting, because sometimes life can just be like that. But more than just what's my instinct, or what do you think about this? Things that are lost, why couldn't it go back to the way that it was? The new thing that you received just reminds you of the old thing that was lost, and there's a cycle there where you are enslaved to, you're bound by better days. And the question becomes, what does God think of this? What does God say to a group of people who are struggling with this kind of thing? Better than what are my instincts or how do I feel about it? What does God think? And how should we respond when we experience loss? How do we receive something new and good from God while acknowledging, oh man, this is just painful because I remember what was. What do we say to this? And thankfully, we don't have to guess because God gave us commentary. We just saw the movie and now we get to read the director's cut. That's the kind of the, we have the director's cut in the form of prophets. So everything up to this point, right? So this part of the Old Testament all the way up to this point has been dealing with the story of Israel for the most part, but hasn't given the voice of God in the story of Israel, the people of God, much telling. And so I want to remind you now that there are minor prophets, if you look later in your Bible, There are minor prophets that are ministering and they're teaching during this time. So you can fold the minor prophets later in the Old Testament, I guess from your perspective, later in the Old Testament. You can fold those back on top of the history of God's people and that's when they were ministering. And we're going to go to the first and most direct handling of this situation in the book of Haggai chapter 2. Haggai, or Haggai, some people would say. Haggai chapter 2. When was the last time your devo was in Haggai? And it would be understandable if you didn't think of Haggai in this way. It's a Bible-quizzing nightmare. It's one of those books that gets lost in the shuffle of all the names. But it turns out that Haggai is ministering. He's a prophet. He's giving God's word in the same way that they had Levites who were helping the temple, in the same way they had Zerubbabel, who was the royal bloodline of the king. They had prophets. And he was ministering and saw these things in real time, and he was giving God's instruction on what to do. And so I'm grateful. I'm grateful for this commentary, a direct word from God about what to make of a situation when you're bound by better days. And here's what we find starting in the third verse of Haggai. Before I begin reading, I just want you to picture the scene. Haggai chapter 2, verse 3. My guess is, is that he's there. 
He's seen it. He's known the stories. So I can imagine that he stands up and he's, he's got the temple behind him. He's going to give a speech. He, he hears the crowd weeping and he sees the whole thing. So maybe he's going to give a speech and he says, uh, let me just talk to you about this. And the whole time that he's talking, he's going to reference this house, this second temple. And you can imagine, it's remember, gloomy. It's not like the first one. So imagine he says, hold on, hold on. Now many of you, and then he gets interrupted because one of the nails comes out of the sign that says temple and it like goes, you see the picture? You know what I'm saying? It's obvious the thing is not what it, what it used to be or could be. It's still in progress. It's a facsimile and a bad one at that. And yet he stands up and here's, he's going to address, here's how you should feel in a moment like this. He says, verse 3 of Haggai chapter 2, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Essentially what is promised here, prophetically spoken by Haggai to the group that is there, is that you should not be and are not bound by better days and neither is God. And he's going to give them some lessons, some reminders for them in the midst of a rebuilding period where there's been real loss, where there's actually rats running through the thing that was the glorious pristine temple. How do we live? And what should we remember in a moment like that? And so we're going to go through a few of these things. I'm going to start with what I believe to be the most important lesson. It's what is the thrust of his whole statement to them. And that is, is that God is saying, I am not bound by place. I'm not bound by a better place to worship. He says to them, the most important thing about you has always been and remains that I am with you. My spirit Remains. That means that even in the midst of Jerusalem being ransacked, even in the midst of the temple being undone, even in the moments when they were being forced by forced education to learn the languages of a foreign land, God's Spirit did not leave them. God's Spirit remained in their midst. It is why they can fear not. He tells them to work. Why? Because I'm with you. The reality is, God does not need perfect circumstances, and by this it might mean he does not need a perfect place to dwell. God is not a picky traveler. He doesn't live in a place where people live in a temple so that he's going to reject his people because it's not nice enough. He's not a picky relative coming to the family reunion who won't stay at your house because you have a dog. And it's like, well, maybe in this case it would be a medical reason, so we could be gracious. 
but maybe they won't stay where the rest of the family's staying because they don't stay at Holiday Inns or something like that. They're not picky saying, this isn't the kind of thing that I have to remove myself from. It's beneath me because God does not dwell in places made by human hands. So yes, the temple's terrible. Yes, it's rusty. Yes, it's not like the old one was, but I am here. And that has been always the thing that mattered. God's spirit is in the midst of his people, and it is the thing that marks them. It is their one consolation. It is the thing that if they do not have it, they are totally and utterly lost. And if they do have it, they have everything. And so God says, I'm not bound by place. I can be in a rickety barn. I can be in an open field. I can be in a 1950s American chapel-looking room with pink windows. God is not bound He is present with his people just as powerfully, no matter the place and its niceness. And I want you to remind me of this when we spend years and years looking for a place to be. Because it is very tempting. It's very tempting to say, God, do you know what you could do and how present you could be if? The reality is he does not dwell in temples made by human hands. This has been the lesson for all humanity, and it carries forward. In fact, Paul, the same Paul who writes Romans, confronts a group of people in Acts chapter 17, and he reminds them of this. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Don't look at your circumstances or the niceness of the place you worship and say that determines whether or not God is there. He is in the midst of his people and it gives them strength. So God is not bound by place. There's another interesting thing here. Did you notice the repetition in Haggai? He says over and over again, the Lord of hosts said this. The Lord of hosts said this. The Lord of hosts said this. What's being emphasized here? I think what God is reminding them is that he's not bound by better groups of people or better strength in numbers. This is a crew of 50,000 people who've come back, and they're a bit of a motley crew. They're not rich. They're not known by name. They don't have influence. Remember, they're not ruling the land. And I'm sure that many of them are looking back and saying, oh man, we could really do something. If only it was like Solomon's day. We numbered in the millions. We were influential. We had all that we needed, all the groups and all the people were ours. And God says to them, as a reminder again and again and again, look, you're not bound by the number of people, by the size of your crowd or its influence or its power, and I certainly am not. I am the Lord of hosts. The idea of Lord of hosts is that he commands groups of angels. He's Lord of all creation. He gives all mankind life and breath and all angel kind as well. Everything in heaven and on earth, the Lord commands, and he says, I'm not bound by better groups or more numbers. I command armies. And this is a good reminder for people who feel powerless, who feel like they don't have control. People who perhaps are tempted to say, God, I believe you're there and you're powerful if we have the right army or the right influence, or if we could overwhelm our enemies. But God reminds them, even in the name of him, he gives himself, No, 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 I'm the Lord of hosts. I am not bound by better days when it comes to numbers and people and crowds. Jesus might say something similar when later on he says, 
Look, wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. Don't get enamored by or think that if you could just fill seats, if you could just get enough people, if you could just get the crowds, if we could just foment the mob in God's name, then we could really do something. There were times when Israel was great in numbers and power and influence and they were very far from God. And during none of those moments was God himself ever bound by better days and numbers and crowds. So he says, these are the things that we're learning. He's not bound by a better place. You don't have to have the shiny temple. It's okay. He's not bound by better crowds or bigger sort of things. And then he's going to go on and he's going to hit another one. He says, also, I want you to, remind, to be reminded, I'm not bound by a better economy. So imagine you were there and you remember the old temple and you see what they're bringing in. Let's say for Solomon's old temple, because the nations of the world had legitimately come and gathered him everything, uh, Solomon could have five people in an assembly line picking out only the finest of marbles. He could make every one align perfectly. This one was rejected because it doesn't have the right shimmer. Just imagine the most nerding out interior designer, right? That's what Solomon would have had. Everything perfect and pristine. A man put a $120 million hockey arena in my hometown where I grew up. And he brought those who were going to design this arena around uh, to visit any stadium that they wanted and just said, pick out the best of the best. He imported Italian marble for the floors. He put leather seats. There are club seats in every other arena. Leather seats in every single seat of the whole place. That's sort of what the first temple was like. And now they're building this. So imagine you were part of that team. And now they're building this. And they're saying, I just, just do the metal bleachers. Those are fine. What might you be tempted to think? Well, in our world, that usually means is that you ran out of money. Inflation just got to you. It's as though God told Israel, this 50,000, go back and rebuild. I got the permit for you. Here's the plans. He sent it. But then he went to the store and he saw the price of lumber these days. And he's just like, I'm sorry. I just, I know what it used to be like. I just can't do it. And what God is telling him through, hey guys, no, no, no. I'm not bound by better days when you had more money and more stuff. All of the silver is mine. All of the gold is mine. All the treasures of all the nations are mine. And so this means when you have a lot and when you have a little, God's work in your life is not bound by that measurement. And I believe this is a good lesson, not only for God's people, but for everyone. And we should say these things out loud. We are often tempted to measure the goodness of God by how successful we are monetarily, how successful we are in the gathering of stuff. Now, I can say a couple of things definitively. One, religious circles, Christians absolutely included, all the way up to this day, have not handled money well, often. There has been self-aggrandizement. There has been chicanery of all kinds. There has been dishonesty. And we need to be aware of these things, absolutely. At the same time, we must continue to and insist on talking about money because Jesus talked about it all the time, and he must have known something. And that is, is that for all of us, we could be tempted to measure ourselves by our things. Greed is a very rarely confessed sin. 
And even if you don't get to the point of ever confessing greed, you may be able to confess earlier than that. It's not so much that I'm greedy. I just crave the security that I have and the feeling of success I have in getting these things. And we must not shy away from the reality that this is something we need to face. So God is essentially telling the whole group of Israel that went back, the people of God, listen, there were times, and it was a blessing, you should receive it and be joyful. I'm glad you rejoiced at the temple. There were times when you had everything. You could pick out the perfect gold for the corner of the top of the one room. Wonderful. But be careful. Because what you're thinking now is you're saddened, you're lamenting this building, and you think it's because I can't afford it. You think that what you don't have is an accident. When the logical conclusion is that we must come to grips with this, that what we have is from God's hand, and what we don't have is from God's hand. That is the lesson. He's not bound by the stuff that we have. And I, my guess is that some of the crying was in this. So God is not bound by place. He doesn't need a better building. His spirit is there. He's not bound by groups or better crowds. There can be a small number. It's the same lesson he told Elijah. I have a remnant, 7,000, a perfect number that have not bent the knee. And he is also not bound by better economies, better stuff. It's not fretting over inflation. We need to learn the secret of being content what we have. Maybe one that's not as obvious here. Remember I told you that they sing the songs. They put everything in place. And I think what they're trying to rebuild is this moment when the glory falls on the first temple. And if you look through Israel's history, there were some absolutely amazing worship moments. And I think what Haggai tells them is, look, you're not bound by better days when it comes to a particular experience of me, even in worship. And God himself is not bound by those experiences. They're a blessing to be received. Do you know what I mean? You ever sang the song and you just meant it? You thought, this is crazy. I'm not just singing a song. I want this. I see Jesus as beautiful right now. You ever prayed the prayer and shocked yourself because you believed it? That's kind of sad to say. I can distinctly remember moments when I prayed for something and I got done praying and I thought, oh my goodness, I think God's going to do that. You ever talked with someone and understood the Bible in a way you hadn't understood it before, and you just thought, unbelievable. This, I'm alive in a way that I wasn't before. You remember those moments, right? You ever swayed to the worship songs and felt wrapped up? Israel had a lot of those moments. In fact, I bet some of these old guys would say, let me tell you, do you remember our story? You're telling me that this makeshift band, they just dusted off their cymbals, they can barely remember the songs. We got a broken down temple. You're telling me this is what we're after? This is what is hopeful for us? Don't you remember, there was a time when our leader had to cover his face because God's glory would shine so bright. You don't remember that? You're telling us that we need to be strong, continue to work, and have faith that God is there? Well, do you remember how we knew God was there? A fireball in the sky? You remember the fireball times? And I think that what's being taught here is a particular lesson 
that God is not bound by our particular experience of Him as wonderful as those things could be. And we must not tie God and our blessings to be bound by better days than that as well. If you can't recreate the circumstances of your college testimony and salvation, it's okay. I heard a person say to me once, early in high school, our church was in the midst of, and it's going to be shocking to you, in the midst of disagreement over worship music. I know, I know, you've never heard of it. Some Christians get very uptight about what songs and what band and how it goes. It's just the way that it is. And I remember somebody saying to me one time when I was in high school, they said, you know, here's something, just, just hold on to this. No matter what decisions get made or where it goes, just hold on to this. A mature Christian is easily edified. He's easily edified. They're not the kind of person who says it has to be a certain way, and maybe if the band hits the right note and has picked the right songs, and if the guy wears the right outfit and isn't obnoxious, and if the building is clean and the pink windows are shining just the right way, okay, fine, I'll engage in worship. The reality is is that we must not tie God to past experiences of what he was like. It's why the great hymn writer said, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, and he wasn't talking about Michael's. Or Hobby Lobby, not frame like as in put something in. Not, he's not going to trust a sweet frame of mind. It doesn't mean the frame of mind wasn't sweet. Sometimes you have sweet moments with God. But if you spend your whole life chasing a recreation of that sweet moment, you will have manufactured a fake God. And this is a temptation for people who call God theirs all over, not only the world, but in time. God is not bound by a better place. He's not bound by better crowds. He's not bound by having more stuff or not having enough stuff. And he's not bound by a particular circumstance of worship or experience of worship. And all this means that they needed to receive the thing it was that he was going to give them. And that is a a hope and a future promise He tells them and acknowledges, look, I know you remember what it was like with Solomon, and I know you want glory. You've been designed for it. A day is coming. He's not bound by present circumstances. He's not bound by discouragement. He's not bound by sort of loss or solemn assemblies. He says one day in the future, there's going to come a time, and here's what's going to happen. I'm going to shake the whole earth. It's going to shake everything. Everything's going to come back in here, and the glory of this place will be greater than the former. But it's then and not now. This is pictured for us. The writer of Hebrews actually pulls back from this. And this is one of those moments that I just want to say, if you know the First Testament well, reading the New Testament is going to be so much more encouraging to you. I'm about to read a section in Hebrews chapter 12. And I'll confess, the end of it, I used to sing a song with this in it, and I'd be like, I know about the God-consuming fire thing. Yeah, everybody does. But until you go back, and this week I'm reading through this Haggai section, and then you come to Hebrews 12 and you're like, wow. So in light of what we've just read and what God has promised he will do, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews picks this up in verse 26 of chapter 12. He says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. He's referring to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. The earth shakes. He says, now he has promised that yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. God has been faithful to his promise. He shakes the very ground and reminds them that a new temple is here in the person of my son. And this new kingdom being built and this new worship being entered into will remain forever. God is not bound by present circumstances, but offers a future. So there's one last thing to reflect on. At the time that Ezra was writing this, the people of God endure 600 years of relative silence. Not much more going on. In fact, that second temple stands until 70 A.D., and then it falls as well and is gone. So the question becomes, well, how do they remember these lessons and what are they supposed to do in the here and now? You see, we've just bookended all of life. We're reminded that God is not bound by and we shouldn't be either bound by back then. That's back then. Better days should not be binding us now. And we also saw that he has a hope for a future. That in future days, there's going to be a glory that we can't even imagine. The question is, how do they endure 600 years of normal days? You ever had that experience where you wake up to the reality that you just have to live today? I know that sounds gruesome. Maybe I'll put it in better terms. You ever have a wonderful conversation with friends where you feel like you're just getting somewhere? Maybe someone's even sort of being like, gosh, I'm just bottoming out. Here's how I feel and here's how the thing goes. And then you remember you need to go pick up meds for your dog, like at the vet, just something totally inane. And you get to the end of that conversation and it feels rude or wrong or somehow like an interruption of all of what should be normal because you just say something like this. Wow, man, that's really deep, and I hope you find solace for your soul. Anyway, see you tomorrow, and you just have to go. Why? Because you have to live now. You have to do something now. We can learn to not live with or not make an idol out of the past times, but the question is, what do we do with now? And many times, the problem with making an idol of past times is that it ruins now. You become so spoiled, you can't receive anything good here and now. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote a book called Life Together on community, and he was living in community in a weird way, like actually living with groups of Christians. And here's what he noted. He said, you know, people who are most committed to community often kill it because they can't let go of some ideal. They have in their mind what this person and this experience and this thing should be, and so they're constantly striving. They can't receive with gratitude anything that actually is. They're just judging everything based on some idol of their heart and mind. And I believe that that's the danger that was happening. What is happening to a person who at the rebuilding of a temple foundation has to weep out loud for what was lost? Well, he's been spoiled. He has an idea of God, an idea of entitlement, an idea of past days or past experiences that he can't let go of. And I think Zechariah hits this, hits this really well. Haggai is one prophet who's speaking to these things. Zechariah is another. In chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Sounds familiar, right? That's the history. But know what he says in verse 10. This is instructive. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. He says, whoever has despised these things, he's recognizing there are some people 
who have despised the small little good bits of joy that are happening. But even they will one day rejoice in the full picture. Even they will see the goodness in what was happening in the slow work of this grandson of a former king. And I read this and I think to myself, wow, isn't this the danger? Isn't this what it means to be spoiled? You're the kind of kid who gets the gift for Christmas. And right in the moment of you, when you should be enjoying it, you just remember last Christmas. Dad, thanks for the Lego set. Um, I couldn't help but notice it's 700 pieces. Last year, I totally did three that had 1,000 pieces. So I don't know. You know that spirit of entitlement, that spirit of resentment, that spirit of being spoiled. There's a sense in which you can make such a glorying in better days of the past or such a hope in future days that you miss God right here. You can't open your hand and receive the simplest of things. You've despised the day of small things because you want big crowds filling massive, amazing buildings and worship experiences that make you feel a certain way. And you want major progress. And you want it now. There's a commentary by Joyce Baldwin describing Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. And there was this little phrase in there I thought that, that caught this spirit well. That some Christians are so set on perfect circumstances or holding on to something in the past that they can't ever receive with good. And this is what it says. It says that these kind of people had to be surprised into rejoicing. Surprised into rejoicing. You know, the kind of person who says, okay, fine, I'll go, but I'm probably going to hate it. And they have to be overcome so that afterwards they say, like, you know what? Actually, that was okay. Fine. Fine. I'll admit it was better than I thought. And Baldwin's pointing out that this is, a, this is an offense to God. It's an offense to God to live in such a discontented way that you can no longer receive the small things. You deserve influence, and you deserve a place, and you deserve a certain kind of house, a certain kind of job, a certain kind of relationship, whatever it is. You deserve all these things. You've experienced them in the past. They're promised to you in the future, and the fact that they're not here now means that God needs to be despised. And this is an unbelievably deep web to crawl through and out of. The lesson is don't lament or grieve the things in the past, and don't overhope to the future so much that you're blind to today. Don't hold God to a begrudging standard so that you need to be surprised and cajoled into worshiping. Don't even make an idol out of the particular circumstances that God might bring your way in blessings. Because when you do so, you might actually be worshiping something that is not God himself. So here's how I think the people of God made it through all these generations, all these hundreds of years. How do you live today avoiding the temptations and pitfalls of being bound by better days and looking to the future? How do you do it today? Well, I think you open your eyes and you open your hands and you say, God, how and in what are you here now? You become a kind of people who are marked by joy and hope and gratitude and who rejoice in plodding. You know the word plodding? It's a wonderful word. Just imagine someone plodding. What do you see? Isn't that racing? It's not all sweaty and annoyed. He's just making progress, content with what he can do. 
And I believe that what God's people are being taught in these lessons is to be joyful and hopeful, to be grateful and patiently plod. They couldn't yell at God and say, this should happen faster. But they should rejoice in the progress that was being made. The amazing thing is that sometimes progress is just being held, just, just maintaining. But plodding folks have room for that. So I'm not sure. I mean, maybe in this list of things you say to yourself, I, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you had a wonderful high school experience with God, you know, metaphorically speaking. And you were constantly tempted in his presence to dust out your letterman's jacket and just try to recreate. God, I remember what it was like. I remember the song that was playing. And you just recreate, and you're missing him today. It could be that the better days are not your problem. You just can't even imagine any future days that might be good. And you're so tied to doubt about the future that, again, you're missing God today. I don't want us to miss these lessons that God has taken legitimately all of history to try to teach us. 